And welcome to Nerdstalker. I am Adolfo Fronda at Nerdstalker on Twitter, nerdstalker.com, and all the places with a very special guest, Marion McGovern. Let me tell you about Marion McGovern first. She is the founder and CEO of M Squared Consulting, one of the first gig economy companies, and founder of Collaboris Incorporated, an independent contractor compliance firm. Now she works with CEOs through the Alliance for CEOs. She is a board member of CPP, the owner of Myers-Briggs Type Instrument and The Front Porch, a consulting care retirement communities enterprise and the author of a wonderful book that we are discussing today, Thriving in the Gig Economy, How to Capitalize and Compete in the New World of Work. Welcome to the show, Marian. Thanks, Adolfo. So, Marian, this is a, a very timely topic and a great book for what's happening in the world right now. Many things I want to talk about. Can you talk about how you got to where you were? Sounds like a, quite a bit of a, an extensive expertise in, in business to writing and completing this book. As you mentioned, M Square Consulting was one of the first gig economy companies. And I want to say that I started that almost 30 years ago. So gig work has been around a long time. Mm -hmm. In fact, I wrote a, another book in 2001 about the freelance world, which was still very different then. Mm -hmm. I sold my companies in 2005 and remained active in the industry as a board member. But about two years ago, three different private equity firms talked to me about advising them with digital talent platforms. Hmm. And I realized things had come a long way since I'd sold my business. And this was very different. People talking about algorithms to, in a way, eliminate some of the the human judgment that might have been involved in how do you select what kind of consultant you may want to work with you. Right. And I thought, how curious that when companies are saying at the same time that human capital and our ability to attract the best talent is what's critical to our success, how curious that they want to take humans out of the picture of how you get that talent. Wow. So this sort of inspired me to take another look at this world of work and what was really happening out there. So you break down the book into several very interesting chapters packed with a lot of information. Well, let's just get into it right now. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned is uh, sizing the gig economy. Can you give us the lay of the land? Sure. You know, it's a little hard just to start at the beginning people understanding what a gig is, of course, is work right. of uncertain duration. So one of my pet peeves is when people talk about the gig economy, they talk about Airbnb. And to me, mm -hmm. Airbnb, I recognize it takes work to be a host. You have to change the towels and clean the place. But I am getting your really cool apartment in Newport Beach because it's got a great view. It has all the bedrooms I need and it's available when I want to be there. I'm not getting it because you're a great host. So I'm not giving you the work. I am taking a share of your asset. Mm -hmm. So to me, if it's an asset involved, a physical asset, that's mm -hmm. a sharing economy business, not a gig economy business. But they are related. They are related. Um, and again, people lump them together all the time. Uh, the other dimension of that is the on-demand world, which is, you know, drivers, uh, task rabbit, you know, something that you need to be there in five minutes. That clearly is a gig, no question. It just has a different characteristic than, say, consulting gigs, because I don't really care who delivers my dry cleaning, but I really care who might be building my website. And I want to have a conversation with that person uh, or some level of dialogue before I say, absolutely, you're, you're the person I want to do your gig. 
So there are sort of different dimensions of how much interaction I, as the client or consumer, want to have with the person that's doing the gig before that gig starts. So that said, given that you've got those three areas, there is a, a data problem about the gig economy mm-hmm. where there, the, the U.S. government stopped its contingent workforce study in 2005, which was not terribly um, prescient on their part. So there hasn't been data. How many people are doing this? You can't use IRS tax data because people get 1099s for all sorts of reasons, dividends or whatever. So that's murky. And there are different organizations, companies, think tanks, et cetera, that have gone after this information. Probably the one that I like the best is a firm called MBO Partners, which is a uh, a competitor in the in the gig world in terms of they offer employment services for consultants who need to be employed, but they've been tracking this segment since 2012. So they're the only one with really good historical data at this point. That said, a lot of the sources, when you look at kind of the way that they describe their sets, the way that they do their sampling, they all pretty much settle around the notion that there are over 40 million people in America that are doing this. There are probably another 28 million that are considering it or would like to. Of that group, the majority, 28 million, are people who are doing it largely full-time as a profession. And then there are, you know, some studies call it the part-timers, some studies call it the occasional people. But these could be people that are an Uber driver who might be a teacher who drives for Uber during the off months, for example. It's amazing that the government doesn't provide this type of data. It reflects the health of a, you know, our country, right, in terms of economic. Yeah. And theoretically, they're going to start again. They were supposed to start again in 2018 with the first set of data then available in 2019. But as we all know, things don't necessarily happen in Washington, especially now, <laughs> the way yeah. they might be. So, um, And who knows what the new Department of Labor chief will want to do in this right. world. Unclear. So there were a couple points in the book that I wanted to touch on the stepping back a little bit here. One of which is when you mentioned this with this classification issue, misclassification issue of uh, someone like Homejoy, for instance, that you bring mm-hmm. up. You say Homejoy is a, is a house cleaning service for you people don't know, uh, backed with uh, $40 million in VC venture capital, did not make the call soon enough and ended up closing its doors in 2015, in large part due to worker misclassification issues. Can you expand on what, what exactly that means? Yeah, you know, we actually have a problem in the country. Uh, well, one, one problem. There's an issue around employment law because it's very unclear what mm-hmm. defines an employee. You would actually think that's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is it isn't. So uh, you have regular employees who you know work for companies, and then you have the independent contractor issue. So there are 20 rules that the IRS uses to define what a contractor is, but they're not necessarily all the same. They're, one is not more important than the other. Mm-hmm. How you can put together, you know, whether this person is an, a contractor or not, despite the fact that they may have signed a, a contract saying they are, can be overturned by a court. So it's all very murky. Wow. And what it comes down to is direction and control. So if you're directing this person, if you're telling them they have to be in your office at a certain time and you're controlling their day-to-day activities, Courts will often say that that means they are your employee. So in the case of a cleaning service, 
if you think about that, I don't know the ins and outs of how Homejoy ran, but they mm -hmm. probably had a team of people where they were saying, you have to show up at a certain house at a certain time. And, and this is the way, this is the kind of quality we offer our people or our mm -hmm. clients. So I can see how that would look like direction and control. What a lot of these digital platform companies have said is, since we don't tell them, since they choose when they want to work, that means they're not under our control. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, that has been uh, the largest issue with the Uber lawsuit. And I actually think it's going to be great that the Uber lawsuit some, at some point will be adjudicated because it may put some clarity in what is a very gray area. I mean, finally, this will be high profile enough that they'll pay attention to what's the answer here. I think it could go either way in the Uber case. The drivers do work whenever they want. I have to say, I've probably informally interviewed about 80 drivers, and uh, very few of them were doing it full-time as a profession. Many were doing it with Uber and Lyft at the same time. Mm -hmm. But many were you know, teachers, masseuses, retired people. My most interesting guy was um, a fellow who did fantasy football, and this was his way to like talk to people. Wow. So, so the claim that they can work their own hours and many of them are not full time is pretty legitimate. I think the problem Uber faces is you're forced to use their pricing, mm -hmm. not so much their app because you can just say that's enabling them to find their, their rides, but the, the Uber pricing is what the defendants have anchored on. So we'll see what, how it all turns out. For people en entering this, you know, there is sort of a, why do I care? And you really should care as a consultant whether or not it's right. Because the truth of the matter is it constrains a lot of things. If you're a consultant, you can deduct a lot of your business expenses. You can deduct your travel to a client. If you're an employee, you can't deduct that travel to your client. It's just part of your, your daily routine. Mm -hmm. So there are many things that add up over time. So mm -hmm. it's really important to to understand what do I want to be and what then are the the rights and other options I have in that status. So one of the challenges that you bring up in the book also is uh, something with uh, these problems that the gig economy didn't invent. Uh, for instance, you say, uh, for many, the gig economy is simply the next step in a losing effort to build some economic security in a world where all the benefits are floating to the top 10%. Can you expand on that, please? That, that is the challenge as an independent contractor. You don't have access to the benefits that are traditionally associated with employment, healthcare, retirement benefits, et cetera. If you are an individual who is stitching together a lot of gigs to try to create a full-time opportunity, it could be that you're not going to be able to include any sort of benefit profile in your mix. Hmm. Now, that said, there are a lot of eyes on this problem. And there are a lot of very smart people making recommendations around the notion of, okay, what about portable benefits? What about the idea if I work 20 hours for Uber and 10 hours for Lyft and 10 hours for TaskRabbit, that some portion of what I get would pay into some pool for benefits. And based on how much I've worked for them, it could be prorated and I could get some of that. So that's one model of portable benefits. Hmm. And Senator Mark Warner, and I'm sorry, I forget his uh, partner in the house has just come up with a bill with the idea of let's do a pilot on this. Mm -hmm. So again, why, why we can't just do it, I'm not really sure, but we'll do a pilot on this where we put a pot of money to give different 
whether it's companies, digital platforms, nonprofits, whoever it is, come up with models of how you could do portable benefits. And then by 2019, have an answer uh, as to what works. Now, certain companies are doing it on their own. Care.com is already providing an option for their caregivers, babysitters, et cetera, to receive some benefits. And then, of course, there are private company entrepreneurs that are figuring out ways to make this work. There's a very cool company in Southern California called Ship Pixie, which has taken um, restaurant workers in fast food stores. So probably a, a, a very underserved part of the of the gig world, if you will, and said, okay, let's put together a situation for you where you can have so many shifts at Denny's and so many shifts at McDonald's, which would make you a full-time person and you will become our full-time employee and we will provide you with benefits. Wow. So, so there are people stepping in because you know the government isn't necessarily to co- because they see an opportunity to make it work better. Uh, a fascinating um, part of the book also that you mentioned is you say that another thing that that helped nudge people towards independent life uh, has been the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the ACA. Can you expand on, on your thoughts on that? You know, as I said, I was in this business for a, a long time. And back in, we started surveying our independent consultants probably in the late 90s, all the way through the mid 2000s. And we'd do an annual survey of things that, that concerned them. And for many, healthcare was a big issue. And the only way they could kind of jump off if they were in a corporation already was if they had a spouse that had benefits that they had, or if they had COBRA for a long enough time period that they felt they would be able to get something. And again, that pre-existing condition part kept many people in the workforce. Now it is totally different. In writing the book, I met with many CEOs of digital talent companies, as well as more traditional intermediaries, one being Jody Miller of the Business Talent Group. And she said, absolutely. And she has seen a sea change of people relying on the Affordable Care Act because now it gives them more freedom. They're no longer tied to a corporate employer for benefits. And you know, what's really interesting too, just a historical note here, is that all happened back in the 50s with the Treaty of Detroit, it's called, where the automakers decided they would connect healthcare benefits with employment. It's not like it's been forever like that, but I guess 70 years is is long enough. But at some level, as business has changed, that structure hasn't changed. And it would be really valuable now to figure out ways that we can decouple that insurance and retirement is the same from the corporate umbrella because, you know, the world of work has changed. I was amazed that the, the Republicans were uh, unable to repeal uh, the ACA altogether. I guess that goes to show how important it is for everyone in general. Absolutely. And the number of people that kind of subscribe to it that I think 20 million people is a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So there are some core parts of the book that I really want to highlight, so I want to get to them. Uh, One of which is, we're sort of jumping ahead, but uh, building your independent brand. Can you expand on that? Well, you know, when you go out on your own, it really is like having your own business. And so a business needs a uh, a brand. It needs a value statement. What do you stand for? You know, whether you're a a copy editor and a web developer or, you know, a digital marketing person, what is it that you... What's your special sauce? What do you bring to somebody else? And you know, part of that is also, how is it that you choose to do business? I mean, do you want to work 80 hours a week for most of the year and then kind of kick off for six months? I mean, how do you want this to all work? So that's also part of, of your brand, of just 
you know, are you a lifestyle company or are you just doing your own full-time work as an independent? Mm -hmm. It's, it's very, it's, it's important to figure all that out and figure out how you like to work. So once you figure out your, your value proposition, you then have to make sure that it is appropriately spread. And of course, that's the digital world, all of your social media feeds, your LinkedIn stuff, your Twitter stuff, depending on your field. You know, if you're an artistic person, Pinterest or Instagram might make sense to, to showcase your work. If you are a writer, obviously, you probably should have a blog. You know, marketing people might want blogs, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to pick and choose where you focus. And two things I want to emphasize. One is I don't think enough people pay attention to their LinkedIn pages like they would back in the day to a resume. Mm -hmm. I see more typos in LinkedIn pages which yeah. is my own personal peeve, Guilty. but this is your brand. Yeah, yeah, this is your brand on the internet. I mean, make it good. And the other is all of this digital world and commenting and giving good content and sh showcasing what you know to potential influencers, potential um, clients is great, but that can't be replaced with actually being out there alive and in person. Somebody could steward their digital brand inside all day, every day, forever. And, and that's mm -hmm. not going to bring work. It is something that immediately, as soon as someone hears about you, they're going to go to your LinkedIn page. They're going to go to your website. They're going to say, oh, yeah, she looks like the right person. But somehow they have to meet you and you have to meet people live and in person. So it's no substitute for, you know, going to conferences, going to to events where you can meet and greet people. It, people often hate to network, but people hire people. So mm -hmm. it's really important that, you know, you don't use the digital world to totally ignore personal sales, which you mm -hmm. kind of need mm -hmm. to do. Which is very tempting. And, and what I really loved about this chapter in the book is that you preface the whole thing saying that you have written a book on the, the topic of brand uh, previously, as well as several other uh, authors have in, when it was a really hot topic. So one of the things you ask is, what more is there to say on the topic, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the part of what I tried to do actually in that chapter was to bring different perspectives to it, whether it was how consumer brands work, whether it was different ways to think of your value structure, different ways to think of how you work, all the way up to the notion of if you have a digital brand, you have to protect it. And it's really important. You know, reputation.com has made its own leadership role in that particular niche. And there are I use a, a brand called you, but there are many that are important to use just to, to make sure that somebody hasn't responded to a tweet with something that's inflammatory, especially mm -hmm. in this day when it's almost hard to follow all of your social media avenues. So another really important chapter that we should touch upon, if you could give us an overview, is one that you entitled The Nasty Little Employ Employment Problem. Can you um, give us an overview of, of that chapter? Well, again, this is this issue of the independent contractor versus employment status and the fact that in some cases it can be unclear what you will be. As part of the book, I joined oh, probably a dozen of these digital talent platforms, the one that I was, the ones that I was at least nominally qualified for and a few that I really wasn't qualified for, but they took me anyway. And I was also a client of about four or five of them just to sort of see how they worked. and most kind of disavow the whole employment situation. They pretty much say, hey, it's up to you, client, to figure out whether this person is an employee or contractor. You know, we're going to 
help get them paid and well, you can use our platform to pay them but you know that we're it's not our call it's your call so wow. hey do it well mm -hmm. um, and the problem with that is that I think a lot of these platforms are being used by probably small and growing companies to the extent that many of them are still just credit card based I don't think they're being used by big companies because you know Apple is not going to pay you by credit card but be that as it may a lot of those managers at the small growing companies or the entrepreneurs there may not really know about this issue. So mm -hmm. they're not the one to make the call. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, if the, if the call is wrong, there are implications for you. The other one besides independent contractor versus employee is suppose you are an employee, are you eligible for overtime? Yeah. You know, the, the whole issue of who's eligible for overtime and who isn't, right. if indeed you're an employee, uh, you may be eligible for overtime. This and yeah. and if you are an employee and eligible for overtime, don't you want that? Yeah. So so that that's another issue that again, some some young entrepreneur who all he wants is to get somebody to to run this thing for him mm. uh, or her. Mm -hmm. And um and maybe they are because it's really important to them. Maybe they are directing and controlling them because hey, we really need to get this done. And they the project drags on, so they're there a long time. That person could definitely be deemed an employee potentially, wow. and and chances are that entrepreneur may have no idea that they've crossed any kind of line. Wow. So that so it is a uh, a nasty little problem, as I entitled that that chapter. Yeah. That could come up and and bite you, whether you're the person securing the talent or whether you're the talent. Right. So another really important chapter I saw was the employee experience as an independent. Can you can you touch on that? We kind of touch upon it in what we just talked about, but if you could expand on it. Well, you know, the uh, the employee experience is really a hot topic in the corporate world now. Jacob Morgan is a, uh, a futurist, somebody I interviewed for the book, and that's the the name of his latest book that just came out in March. So it's kind of like the catnip for corporate people right now. But it's very important because if you if you have a good experience for your employees, they'll still engage, they'll stay with you. And and again, it's all about it's all about talent. Mm -hmm. So if the employee experience is so important, what about the gig workers experience? What's important about that? And certainly there are some aspects of it. When I talked to Jacob about it, he thought that was it was kind of a funny question. But one of the things he said is, you know, you got to have the right tools. So you have to have make sure you have everything you need. And there is a whole ecosystem of providers out there with tools for freelance workers, whether it's, you know, personal financial things. I mean, Intuit obviously is really going after independent workers, but there are loads of financial packages. In fact, I give a list of like the top apps for, for gig workers in the book, but there are things that'll track expenses, things that'll track time, things that'll do timesheets. There are things that will, um, you know, multiple collaboration tools, et cetera, et cetera. So having all of those tools, space is another important thing. You know, how do employees work and, and how, how engaged do they feel by their space? Mm -hmm. And that's a, uh, an interesting issue for independence because of course, if you're going to space other than a home office, there is a, a price associated with it. But there's also an aspect of community. And it was actually in the news this morning, WeWork got $4.4 billion more from SoftBank today. Mm -hmm. um, but WeWork is the largest real estate play in the country right now. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, part of what they are building is this sense of community with their various cohorts. So not all of their renters or members are independents, but a large portion of them are. Mm -hmm. And there is this notion that one of the hardest things about deciding to do this is understanding within yourself whether you can deal with the isolation. Because it is very, by definition, you're on your own. You have to have your own motivation. You have to have your own sort of recharging skills. When something goes wrong, you've got to be the one that deals with this. So so being in an environment where other people may be experiencing that same thing and where you might be able to sort of share some of those issues, even though they are your own and not collective, has turned out to be a big advantage. Interestingly, there is an uh, a much smaller operation than we were, but a, a totally, they, they build that as part of their, we are all here to support each other. And it is just for women. It's called the Hivery here in the Bay Area. And um, it's all about sort of independent women supporting what other women, whatever they're doing, whether they're, you know, artists, business people, you know, web developers, or, you know, masseuses, etc. So there is that notion that as people become more, as this trend continues, and there are more gig workers out there, there are going to be more need, there need to be more ways to create community. And space can be one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing, the third thing he mentioned was culture. And the notion of, you know, what is your culture? And And I talked a little bit about you have to figure out what your company stands for. But there's also a, why did you do this in the first place? Are you doing this because you think it's a, uh, a great way to be able, as one of my old friends did it, he was a surfer and he wanted to be able to like surf when he, <laughs> when the waves were good. But, you know, maybe do you want to have a sense of, do you want to have time to do other things? Maybe some of that includes giving back to the community. So do you want to give a percentage of your profits to charity or, you know, so so figuring out some way to create your own personal culture, whatever it is for your your company of one. So another really interesting topic that I want to touch on is uh, the future of the gig economy, and uh, especially with the the workplace and uh, and the workers. Yeah, you know, there are really three prongs there. So the first one is this public policy, social safety net. And as I mentioned, you know, there's this bill pending. Another bill just actually happened in May in mm-hmm. New York City, which is called the Freelance Isn't Free Act. And that goes after the various people that never pay their freelancers. Oh, and wow. this has very uh-huh. stiff penalties. And as I say, it just started in May, so it's unclear how it's happening. But, you know, that's a good step in the right mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. And on this whole independent contractor issue and the, the ambiguity in employment law, there are a number of, of initiatives afoot to try to change that. There's one school of thought of let's create a whole another designation of worker. Some people are calling it the dependent contractor. I mean, there are different names for it, but the notion of let's just recognize that there is this class of people that may work long-term for a client, but they still don't want to be you know, bound to the hip as an employee. And so that's gaining some traction. There's another one, which I actually find the most compelling called certified self-employed. The idea that maybe you would file something with suggestion has been the Small Business Administration and you would get a certification which said, which only lasts three years, which says that, you know, for these three years, boom, I'm self-employed. I can have a 1099. Don't try to make me an employee. So there are there are those things going on, which is mm-hmm. sort of good on the, on the policy side. But we it's very discussed. We still need to fix this this social safety net problem for people on the company side. They have to figure out 
like some companies I think are not really, they're not really ready to deal mm-hmm. with the idea that they're going to be bringing people in that are not always going to be long-term employees. And I think there's an, a, a venerated Irish economist, his name's Charles Sandy, who has this wonderful notion that companies should be like the British army. So a lot of people go into the British army. You have to go in, you get this modicum of training. And so everybody is trained at some level and then a bunch of people leave. And certain people leave, you know, after two years, certain people leave at sort of the middle level. And everybody knows going in that only a few people are going to be generals. He views companies that way too. So everybody goes in, they get, they get some level of training in how organizations run. And then they go off and they start their own thing. And they may go off at different levels, but only a certain small number are actually going to stay with that company. And I think that that is an interesting uh, mindset for companies to adopt. The idea of, yeah, we're going to lose these people. So, you know, that is what it is. What we have to make sure is that they're going to want to come back to us as, as consultants. So right now, Glassdoor has made its mark on being the person that says, this is what employees think of their employers. Right. Well, and people want to be the employer of choice. What they mm-hmm. will need to be thinking about is being the client of choice. Mm-hmm. You want those consultants to come back to you. And, and pretty soon there will be, you know, especially if you're not paying your consultants, there will be a glass door for contractors. I'm sure of it. Where to figure out who's working. Yeah. Because the other aspect with, you know, it might not be that big companies don't, I mean, they ultimately pay, mm-hmm. but they're paying individuals on a 60 or 90 day time frame, And that's, that's inappropriate for individuals. Mm-hmm. So those things, companies will have to sign up to change. On the individual side, part of it is, has to start earlier on relative to encouraging entrepreneurial skills in people. Because there are, people who sort of get out there and they they start and there are some really hard things about running your own business you know like many of the financial people hate to sell or the creative people hate to run the numbers you know but there are there are aspects of things you have to do but i think part of the reason why some people don't like it is they're just not exposed to it right. so why not have more exposure to entrepreneurial programs in high school or even younger. Mm-hmm. And shouldn't everybody when they graduate from high school have some basic level of financial literacy of, mm-hmm. you know, what is a, you know, what is a balance sheet and how, you know, what's profit and right. how do you do all that stuff? In fact, one of my interviews with Uber drivers was with a uh, teacher mm-hmm. and he said that he'd always been a W-2 employee. And when he came to Uber, and of course Uber didn't want to look like an employer, so they weren't like helping, it would have been really helpful if he knew how to run his business as a driver. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knew he could deduct his gas, but he didn't know he could deduct repairs and things or a portion of them. Again, sort of a, a more of an orientation toward that entrepreneurial literacy, as well as a, a real emphasis on being a leader of yourself. You know, you, you have to sort of develop that ability to redirect yourself to be, to on the one hand, be part of, of projects, which I think is where education is right now, but on the other hand, to realize how to self-direct yourself elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a big opportunity for all of the, you know, one thing we didn't talk about is the age cohorts mm-hmm. and, and millennials have only just surpassed boomers as the biggest cohort. They're now like 40%, but you know, boomers are right there at 37 38. I mean, they were, they've been doing this a long time mm-hmm. and chances are they're actually earning more money just because they have um, more expertise. But I, I think it behooves the, the more senior consultants in the space uh, in any of the spaces to sort of be there as mentors for people becoming that. I mean, they, they sort of, 
have been there. They, they have managed to practice. They've done this for a long time. And you have that sort of mentorship in organizations. But if you're not in an organization, where are you going to get that? So right. I, I think that's another opportunity is for the independent workers to help each other, whether they're at whatever level of skill or sort of specialty they have. The book is called Thriving in the Gig Economy, How to Capitalize and Compete in the New World of Work. Marion just gave us a tip of the iceberg of what's in here, um, all this wonderful content. And you can see all my tags and notes here and all my highlighting in here. It's crazy. Um, it's amazing and an essential tool, I think, for several of you, especially our audience out there. Marion, do you have any closing thoughts? Where can we get more information about you? Uh, you can go to marionmcgovern.com. Uh, and there you can uh, link to Amazon or Barnes and Noble to buy the book. People can find me on LinkedIn, Marion McGovern. And I'm happy to hear from anyone, especially because I am working with one of my gig economy software developers to change my website right now. Because what I really want to build is a, um, an audience of independent workers. Because I'd love to ask them questions, you know, real time. What do you think if they actually repeal the Affordable Care Act and get that information real time? So I'm. I should be incorporating that within the next month or two. Great. So I'd love people to go there and subscribe and be part of that audience. And can you give us the URL? MarionMcGovern.com. And the other thing I've been um, doing a lot of, which is on the website, is looking at cool gig companies. No, so awesome. I'm highlighting um, companies that are doing some different things in the space. And that's uh, the one that's going up shortly is called Working Not Working, which is all about creatives, where they do actually a podcast for their creative community. because. One of the things for creative that's, that's a little different in the gig world is there's a lot of rejection. You get rejected not because you're a bad animator, but because the art director wants to do something different. A very interesting company working, not working. Excellent. So we'll add all this stuff to the show notes, you guys. Uh, again, I am Adolfo Fronda at NerdStalker on Twitter, NerdStalker.com. Uh, you guys can subscribe and watch our other videos here if you're watching on YouTube. Otherwise, if you are listening on iTunes and all the places, uh, please give us the five stars and then the nice rating and the whole thing. And again, thank you so much. We want to provide you guys value. Thanks for watching and listening, everyone.